3: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Lang Up podcast, part two of our clips highlights from 2018. Hope you enjoyed part one. Thank you for tuning in. Part one was our biggest names, uh, funniest stories, biggest splashes, I guess you could say, for the year. Uh, But there's a lot of other good interviews we had this year and a lot more substance that we thought was worth sharing. And uh, we've accumulated a lot of those here. Uh, not every episode is represented throughout this. Some episodes I went back and listened to, there are just a lot of clips that just don't really trim down to a nice short story or whatnot. So no offense to anyone that got cut out of the year-end highlight show. A lot of different reasons why we included the clips you'll hear uh, later this episode. We're going to start it with some more Bone stories. We have Joe Buck, Gil Hance, Danielle Kang, Julian Suri, Mike Wan, Jessica Corda, Lydia Ko. Just a whole a whole variety of mix and uh, one final shout out again to our sponsor Callaway for all their support this past year. Uh, you guys heard what I had to say about them on the previous episode, but I just want to again, emphasize how hard it is working in golf to find a partner like Callaway that is willing to let us do what we want to do, support us in more ways than you can count and truly make us better every single day. Like I, I like I said, in part one, A lot of the things you're about to hear in this episode would not have ever happened if it wasn't for those guys and the support they've given us. So again, a heartfelt thanks uh, to the, to those guys and to everyone that's listened throughout the year. Uh, We are excited to bring the heat again in 2019, but for now let's start off with the bones Augusta podcast and enjoy the rest of the highlights and everyone have a great holiday and new year and we'll see you in 2019.
2: You know, he's a real student of the game and I I'd like to think to, to a large degree I am too. And, I had noticed if you go back over the years of these great little masters movies that come out that we have all watched on the golf channel and, and elsewhere that show the, the recaps of the tournaments that there were guys on a number of occasions that hit shots on 16 that they just absolutely pose over the, and the ball comes down, you know, 25, 30 feet long. And, and, and they just seem shocked and, and, You know, and when that happens to a tour player, you know, usually when they they've hit something to five feet, they kind of know it when the ball's in the air. They have a feel for the yardage. They hit the shot. They know how they hit it. And when something comes down, they're they're genuinely shocked. Well, you got to kind of take note of that. And I think it had happened to Davis one year. I think it had happened to Duvall one year. And it might even have happened to Ernie that very day. I don't know. And so Phil and I had talked about it and about how, you know we were kind of developing this theory there on 16 that no matter what the situation, when you get, you know, in the hunt, or when you get that master's adrenaline going, if you get between clubs, you go with the lesser club. And even if you're not between clubs, it's a, it just plays a half club short. And it's a very unique piece of land, Chris. And I know you've been there. And when you're out there at the masters, whether you're in 40th place on Thursday or whether or not you're leading on Sunday, there are thousands of people around that hole. And it's in something of a valley. There's uh, several thousand people left and behind the green, and there's people right. And it's, I don't know what it is, but it's a very, very low point in the course. And we started wondering if maybe, you know, what was going on here with the the topography and the number of people, maybe it was affecting the air in a sense that the ball was going to go further. And I'm not trying to sound like some kind of scientist here. We're just (laughs) trying to figure out why are guys hitting these shots that they pose over that are going long. And so Phil doesn't birdie 15. He now is one back and he needs to make one more to tie Ernie, who's ahead of us. And we walked over to the to the 16th tee and Phil says, let's plug it in. Let's go with the theory. Hmm. And I can't off the top of my head remember the yards, but it was probably something like 186, which is an absolute normal good in those days, seven iron. And he hit eight. And so we said, you know what, let's just hit the hard eight and take our chances here. And he ripped an eight, and we really didn't know at that point where it was coming down. But it came down 18 feet right under the hole, uh, which is a great spot because you would literally, uh, and I'm not exaggerating here, you would rather have 18 feet short of the hole on 16 of that Sunday pin than have five feet behind it. It is Anything behind that hole is the hardest, most maybe brutal putt in golf that i've ever seen you can't make it and you'll see guys three putt from 10 feet there regularly and so he you know this ball came down 18 feet short Sure, uh, sure enough it had gone much much further than we would have thought an eight iron would go and he made it and it was a cool moment because you know there he's now tied for the lead in the masters i'm over there you want to jump out of your skin but you're trying to look as cool as you can <laughs> And he came over and he grabbed, he grabbed the, the, the putter end of the club, the club end of the putter, and it hit me really hard in the rear end with the putter grip and said, let's make one more. And it was a really cool moment of all my moments with Phil. It was probably kind of a top 10. So even though we didn't know at that point yet what, what the future held in terms of the next couple of holes, for him to make that two, for the theory to work, and for him to say what he said, he didn't say it. it was, the crowd was going bananas. He had to yell it in my ear, but it, it was a it was a cool moment. I guess what it was, Chris, was that you know normally you, you you want you know Phil's a very technical guy, and 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 if he's got a question, certainly as a caddy, you're going to answer it. And people over the years have enjoyed, I think, conversations between player and caddy, and maybe between Phil and I that have gone on for you know ten or fifteen seconds or whatever. The weird thing about this was it took place over a lengthy period of time because we were waiting so long for the green to clear. And so when we got up there and Phil, you know, had this, you know, 206 yards that he had to the hole, we were waiting and waiting for KJ Choi and whoever he was playing with to, 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 to leave the green. And I think KJ was leading at that point. And so we got up there, I gave Phil the yardage. He had, When you go back and you look at it on TV, TV does no justice to how narrow the gap in the trees was. It looks fairly wide on television, but I can tell you that it was about as wide as uh, the length of a dozen balls, a a box of a dozen balls. So it was about that kind of width. And it was a lot of pine straw. And my biggest concern wasn't that Phil could fit it through the gap in a perfect world. It was that Phil would lose his footing and then hit one of the trees as a result. And so if the ball comes back and hits him or goes into the creek or goes into the gallery, whatever the case may be, excuse me, the patrons, um, you know, it's a bad, bad situation. But, you know, to Phil's credit, he's thinking about making something happen. And that that's part of what makes him great. So I gave him the yardage. He tells me I'm going for it in two. So, okay, I know that now. It's part of my job is any caddy's job is, you know, sometimes when you talk to your player, you know, they're 100 percent in and sometimes they're 80 percent in. And it's not hard to judge, but sometimes you may kind of go back a little bit just to kind of see where they're at. And so I I, I said to Phil, hey, you know, the previous day on Saturday, he had made three straight, excuse me, two straight Eagles, almost three on 13, 14 and 15. I just reminded him, you're the best wedge player in the game. If you lay this up, you're going to have a very routine up and down, you know, for four. And he, he said, I'm going. Okay, okay, so now I know he's 100%, and that's great. So now, again, we're, we're waiting for the screen to clear. It seems like it's taking forever. And finally, KJ Choi putts, and he misses a six-footer that we assume is for birdie, but it turns out was for par, I believe and we hear this murmur in the crowd, I turn to the cameraman right behind us and say, what's up? He goes, I think, believe you said, KJ just made six. You guys are now tied for the lead. So all I'm going to do now is Phil's a big scoreboard watcher. It's it's my, my job, I think, at this point to say to him, hey, does the fact that you're leading now change the way you want to play this hole? And he looks at me and he says listen if i'm gonna win this tournament today i'm gonna have to hit a great shot under a lot of pressure i'm gonna do it right now and that is like the ultimate get the f out of the way to your caddy you know what i mean (laughs) that is i've got it. it you like six iron i like six iron i'm ready to go i'm ready to do this thing i've now said what i need to say and i get out of there as quickly as i possibly can and he hits you know the most famous shot of his career so it was uh it was an incredible kind of geez it was probably three or four minutes that felt like half an hour
3: up next are two clips from fox sports announcer joe buck this is episode 146 uh joe buck is a much maligned broadcaster in a lot of sports and his his transition into golf was a bumpy ride i think he gets a bad rap that is pretty undeserved and I talked to him a bit about uh, taking criticism, what that's been like, and found his answer very fascinating. So enjoy Joe Buck from episode 146.
4: The the criticism, I think, in this world is, you know, everybody kind of sits back and takes shots. But until you've been in there and done it, uh, you know, you don't know all that was going on behind the scenes. And, and I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of that U.S. Open as much as anything I've ever done because it was such a major undertaking. We had more trucks than any Super Bowl I've ever covered. And, you know, we were trying to do a million things. And a lot of the things that we did that that week have since been picked up by other networks. And, and I think, you know, in a small way, improved other networks' coverage. Uh, but, yeah, it's hard. It's hard to get criticized. But that that's why you make the money you make and, and you, you get to be Mr. Big Shot and walk around and act like you're, you're Mr. Sports you have to be willing to take the criticism, take in the, the, the constructive parts of it and, and listen to it and try to get better because of it. And, and if, if nobody cared, that would be awful. And people do care and that makes you work harder and get better and and I think we've done both of those things.
3: Yeah, though I think uh, there was no other way to root for that first year to happen other than for it to go poorly. Like you said, just all the all the elements that were going into it, it was a perfect storm and it was it was just going to there were going to be growing pains no matter what. I think we all expected that. What I liked the most is I think you guys went from being not th- that, that first year not going well to being, I think, a leader in the industry because you dusted yourselves off and you improved on so many things from 2016. But I kind of wanted to discuss with you, uh, I, I continue to be amazed with people's just disdain for your announcing. And I I, I want to know how you're able to kind of take criticism that doesn't seem founded in anything other than like a blind hate for you versus criticism that is very pointed and things that you're actually like, oh, you know what? I actually can build off this, I can respond to something like this. Is there, is it clear to you kind of where that line is?
4: Yeah, I, I, if I let that kind of stuff, like, like more of the unfounded stuff or the you hate my team or this guy sucks because his dad was a broadcaster, now he's doing it. I've been doing this for a long time now and, uh, you know, I, I've, I've, I think delivered for the network so much so that they continue to sign me. I don't think they can, they're continuing to do my dad favors uh, who by the way, never worked at Fox. Uh, But I I think a lot of it is founded in being the national broadcaster, being considered kind of still the young guy, although I'm not anymore. Uh, You know, I started doing the world series when I was 27 and when you do baseball, for as long as I've done it, and you do it from a national perspective instead of from a team side, eventually you're going to piss everybody off. Eventually, every fan base that watches baseball uh, or football, for that matter, when you're getting excited for both sides and and you're screaming and yelling for the Packers just like you are for the Cowboys, or you're screaming and yelling for the San Francisco Giants just like you are for the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, Every fan base eventually thinks, well, why is he yelling for that other team? He doesn't like my team. He sucks. Um, beyond that, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that other than to say I work hard. Um, I feel like I try to get out of the way of the event. Um, I, I feel like I – and then some people take that as ambivalence. And, and I, I take it or I at least do it because I have such reverence for what, I, what I'm covering I don't want to scream and yell over the top of all of it. Nobody's tuning in to listen to me broadcast or tuning in to watch the game. And, and so I, I try to do my best to accent the, the high points and, and get out of the way and, and let you watch the game. And so whatever the online criticism is or whatever that might be to my face, people couldn't be nicer or more complimentary. For the people I work with or work for, they know what I do. They know what I handle. They know the job that that I try to turn in every week. And, uh, you know, the fact that I've been employed at One Network and have done the major sports there for as long as I have uh, is is kind of my antidote to any any being upset about somebody online criticizing me. It it just doesn't – some of that stuff just can't enter into my head.
3: Yeah, it seems. It seems like, and I don't know if there was ever a moment for you where you kind of, it kind of triggered for you, where you kind of steer into the skid and kind of embrace the haters in some way. Did did, did that? Was that a conscious thing for you to kind of feel? Finally, be like, look, I can't, I can't worry about any of this stuff anymore. Or were you always like that?
4: God, no, I was not always like that. And and I went from a a young guy that was trying to not get exposed for being as young as I was, whether I was broadcasting for the Cardinals at twenty one or I was doing World Series at twenty seven. And and trying to kind of I don't know guard against my insecurities and and you know I guess in in some way steer into that. At some point you got to just stop worrying about it and go do it. And and in this day and age it's harder now than it's ever been. Um, not for me, just in general. Uh, you know, with with kind of the online social media world, you have to be you have to be tough. But there was there was a year there in 2011 when I had a paralyzed vocal cord and, and it was the reason why I wrote a book and I went through a divorce and I had a, a, a I, I thought my career was over. And you know, doctors were telling me that if my voice wasn't back in three months, that this was what I was going to be left with. And I, I sounded like I was dying and, you know, three months turned into four turned into five, turned into nine. And I thought, well, this is it, you know, I'm done. And then that year in October, my voice kind of started to come back and, uh, you know, it, ridiculously, I won an Emmy in, in easily the worst year that not only I've had, but any broadcaster's ever had because of one moment, uh, a home run hit in a game six of a World Series. But after that, I thought, you know, I, I've taken for granted for so long what I get to do. And and I, I went from worrying about what I was going to say to worrying about how I was going to say it because I, I, I couldn't really yell and emote and Get loud, and I, I couldn't have fun, and I couldn't joke because you couldn't hear me. And and when you you, I went into a depression, and when I came out of that, I thought, screw it. You know, I, I'm I'm employed, I'm happy, I'm, you know, now I'm remarried, I've got twins, I've got two girls that that love me, and I adore them, and. So what? You know, if somebody doesn't like me or somebody thinks I'm rooting against their team or somebody, what? you know, it's all noise. And, and I, I know what I do and I know how hard I work and I know how hard I try. And if I continue to do that, you know, I, I will have been at Fox for 30 years here at some point. And uh, and that's a long run for anyone. And, and I must be doing something right or I, I wouldn't still be there.
3: Up next was episode 125 with Curtis Strange and Marco Mira. This was really cool. Uh, this is the first ever, uh, I guess, senior tour, Champions Tour podcast we've done. And this is Curtis' story from the 1985 Masters. I wish uh, I wish we had video of this because you could see the tears well up in Curtis's eyes as he tells this story. This is a great one to go back and listen to if you're feeling the itch. Episode 125, this is Curtis Strange. oh I want to get to ninety eight in a second, but you just mentioned the, the eighty five Masters. And I, first, you, you say you threw that away. The first question I have: Can you tell the listeners what you shot the first round?
5: I shot eighty. <laughs> I shot you, 80. I was playing really and, well. And week, I'd already won the, twice yeah. that year. Yeah, I was playing well, and I only say that not to blow my skirt uh, wind up my skirt, but I expected to do well there. Mm-hmm. Snowman, snowman, and On you what know hole? what? It's it's the way Augusta is. If you if you get behind the eight ball and you try to force the issue. And then you get to where, where, well, screw this, you know, I've had enough. And I shot 80. Um, the next day I come out, I try, but, you know, I've already, I got an airplane ticket in my back pocket. I'm getting the hell out of there. I've just had my second boy two weeks, a uh, week before. So I had a reason to get the hell out of Dodge and go home. And uh, so I go out, relaxed. I birdied the second hole and I eagled the third. Game on. Now, I might not make the cut, but let's let's have some pride and shoot a good score here. Sure. Because every, every round helps you for the next year or the next week. If I play good today, I might go play well for the next month. Mm-hmm. That's my mentality. So, then I birdied four. Game on. Next thing I know, I'm on the leaderboard. Next thing you know, I'm getting damn nervous out there. <laughs> I shot 65. Hell, it should have been 63. I was pissed. <laughs> I was really pissed. And so, anyway... Shot sixty-eight the next day in windy conditions, and I'm two-shot behind Raymond Floyd, really. And then I had a shot thirty-two on the front nine the next day, and this I had missed a shot in two and a half days. I never played golf like this in my life, and I'm thinking, when I went to the tenth tee, I knew, I knew it was still a lot of golf to be played, mm-hmm. and I didn't play well, and I lost. Congratulations, to Bernhard, but I'm sorry, I had, <laughs> I wanted the green jacket, but anyway, hey, you learn from that, right? Well, you, you birdied
3: that. 12. And I think you left. You had a three-shot lead when you were playing 13. and
5: Kind of at a moment. Bernhard was and He was far enough ahead of me, so it was really changing quickly at that moment. Okay, ask
3: me some more questions. Two-shot lead. So, yeah, I think you're right. He birdied yeah. 13. And it was a two-shot lead. You're, you're in the fairway on 13. Yeah. You decide to go for the green.
5: Yeah, that's what you do. I drove it well. I drove it too well. I wish that I'd necked it out to the right <laughs> where I had to lay up, but I drove it around the corner. I had four wood. I'd rather have four wood marks than a two iron off that side Absolutely. hill lie. Absolutely, and I just hung it a little bit, and it went in the creek. The really, really bad shot was the third shot out of the water. It was just a, it was a simple water shot, and I didn't hit it hard enough. Made six there. Do you want me to continue on? Oh, this
3: is great. So is anyway, great. so I, I, so
5: now I'm. The so listeners now I'm love thinking, this. They can so, relate to this. So so now my caddy and I, Gypsy, who was an old old character on tour. Okay, guys, you know we we still got the lead. Let's get, we're all right. You yeah. know, talking to each other and and uh, so. I parred 14, which is not an easy par. In 15, I had drove it well. And I got a, which I had like a four-iron layup. I mean, not layup, go for the green. Like I had like 190 or something. And I flushed this thing. And it didn't carry, but two feet short, came back in the water. Wow, I hit a good shot. I'll never forget the announcer, who will go unnamed, said, it sounded like you hit it a bit thin, bull, (laughs) you know, right at it. Came up short, so I made six there. Okay, let you know we still never tied for mm-hmm. leader. Game on, let's play and hit parts sixteen, seventeen, and at eighteen because I had to birdie. But you know what? It's just you never learn from when you win; mm-hmm. you learn when you lose. And I flew home, and Sarah and I sunk to the floor and cried. Yeah, it was hard. That was that was a hard one because it was my really first big chance and. Uh, I had a newborn there. Um, you know, now Curtis Strange is the choker maybe or whatever. It was hard to overcome because I knew what other people were, were think, were going to think about me. And, uh, and I thought I was a bit of a hard ass and now I'm not. And Jack Nicholas came up to me the next week and said, you'll be all right. That had to mean something. Oh yeah. Are you kidding me? He said, you'll be all right. We've all done it. Hmm. And I can't tell you how much that meant to me. Yeah. Um, and the best thing to do was get back in competition. Jesus, get back in there quick as you can, and hopefully you don't throw up on yourself the next time.
3: All right, we're going to switch it up a little bit. Much like the first several years of our existence, we have been a little too focused on the men's side. We're going to focus on the LPGA for a few of these clips. First up is LPGA Tour Commissioner Mike Wan. This is episode 128. I was blown away by the amount of feedback we got on this interview. I had people reaching out asking, hey, can I get part of this audio to use in this conference speech that I'm giving, etc.? Uh, so enjoy Mike Wan talking about how he does his job, how he deals with sponsors. Uh, you, there's a lot you can learn from from this episode. Again, it's 128 if you want to go back to it, about how you can serve clients, if you work in client services, and a lot, to, a lot that you can apply in everyday life. So enjoy Mike Wan, episode 128.
0: Most important thing I think that came to me, I, I remember saying to the board of the LPGA when they said, we'd like you to become the next commissioner. I actually said, are you sure? And they kind of chuckled. And I said, no, I mean, really, I, I didn't grow up in a league. I don't sell TV rights for a living. I, I don't even spend much time at professional sports events other than the ones I've sponsored. And I said to him, you know, the only time I'm really going to be comfortable in this job is sitting across the desk from somebody who's about to write a $5 million check because I've been that guy my whole life. At Procter & Gamble, I sponsored every sport. When I was at TaylorMade at Wilson and then at Adidas, I've done, you know, NASCAR, baseball, football. Virtually any sport, I've been the sponsor. So I've been that guy, wrote the four-year check. And uh, that's when I said that. One of the board members said, "That's exactly why we need you. We have golf people. We can set up golf courses. Mm-hmm. We understand pin placements and and camera angles. We can teach you that. Yeah. We what can, we yeah. don't have in our building is the culture of understanding what it feels like to be a sponsor. And the business, you know, to be blunt, doesn't go without sponsorship. So we need to build a mentality inside the building of what it feels like to be a check writer, not a check receiver. We have a lot of check." Receivers, And I would tell you that I didn't know that, to to answer your question when you started. When I got to the LPG, I wasn't really sure what value I was going to add. You know, I didn't know if I could do this job or not. Pretty quickly on the job, I realized that we were a league, and I don't mean this in a bad way, acting like a league. All we talked about was what was important to us. We never talked about the check writer. In fact, a lot of our staff probably didn't even know who the check writer was in certain events. And so... Um in my I, I asked for a hundred days when I started. One hundred days of no decision making. Just let me listen and learn. You've only met me for a few minutes now, so you see I don't I don't stop talking well. <laughs> so I knew that if I didn't build a hundred days of listening I wouldn't take it. So I said I'm not gonna make any decisions, I'm not gonna lay out any strategies, I'm not gonna make personnel changes for a hundred days. And in that hundred days it became incredibly apparent to me that we needed to change the culture to what I call role reversal. And we've been doing that now for nine years and it just means If we're going to have a meeting about the Kia Classic, the first 50% of the agenda has to be about Kia. The second 50%, we can talk about whatever we want to, but we talk about Kia for the first half. Because if we get Kia right we'll be playing for a long time. If we just get the tournament right, we'll be searching for a new person to put in front of the word classic. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, and it's, uh, you know, you'll see it if you spend time around here. You'll see people walking around with these cards that talk about Kia. I mean, players get educated about Kia. Next week, they'll get educated about A&A. Last week, they were educated on Bank of Hope. I want our athletes, our caddies, and our staff to know what's important to the check writer because it's different every week.
3: So talk me through, let's say like I'm a potential sponsor. What do you, how do you pitch? What's your, what's your pitch? Like what's, is that your role to to specifically sell the events to tournaments?
0: Um, So what I always tell people is, I mean, I literally just, I I shouldn't tell the company because we're, so I literally just had a conference call this morning with a, with a company that we're talking to. And he said, I only got 15 minutes, so go. That's exactly what he said. And I said, if we got 15 minutes, you go. And he said, what do you mean? I said, listen, my first meeting with you, I'm not going to sell you anything in the LPGA. You're not ready to buy it. And I don't even know what you need. So what I typically tell people, if I come visit you, the first meeting, we're not going to talk about the LPGA. We're only going to talk about you. Tell me what's keeping you awake at night. What's missing in your business. Tell me about your 20 biggest dealers and what percent of the business they represent. And we we spend a lot of time learning somebody else's business. And then I say, if I don't come back for a second visit, it's because I don't know how to deal with any of the stuff that you're, you're you're facing. If I come back, I promise I won't waste your time because what I'm going to bring you back will address the things we talked about today. So um, for me, if you're going to be, if you're going to be, my wife always says that uh, we're in a partnership and I guess she, you know, she's right. So, But sponsorship, I think sometimes is a bad word. It sounds like I sold you something, you wrote a check yeah. and the deal's over. Partnership means we're in this together. We're so if I'm going to create a partnership with Kia, if I'm going to create, create a partnership with HSBC or Honda Thailand or, you know, or, or Diamond Resorts, I got to make sure I understand what's important to them. And I got to make sure when the tournament's over, what we delivered, what was important to them, not us. Sometimes I get excited about TV numbers or who won the event or how many people came through the gate. Some of our sponsors don't care about those things. They care about other things toward their business. So when we do our recap, it's got to be built against their objectives, not ours. Most sports don't do that. As a former sponsor, most sports cash your check and they do everything that's on the legal agreement. Uh, If you want to really be in the business long-term, you got to do more than that.
3: So, what is, so t- take me through, like, what you, in your experience, what a sponsor is mostly interested in? Because from the outside, I, you know, look at men's professional right. golf and women's, I always th- think about how much money they put up, and I'm like, Do they really, you know, does so-and-so sell that many cars and replace (laughs) of their money? But talk about, like, what a sponsor gets out of when they buy into a tournament.
0: Well, I would say generally when you talk to sponsors of the LPGA, very different probably than the PGA Tour or the NBA or NFL, most of our sponsors will put hospitality at the top of their list. If hospitality, like really getting to spend time with your customers, with our athletes at the top of your list, we win. If that's the most important reason you're going to get involved in a sports sponsorship, I do that better than everybody else, and I'm not saying that to be boastful. It's just a fact. And you've, I I assume, looked at your agenda. You've talked to other players today. You see that this is an engaging group of young female athletes. They're fun, right? They're different. They're going to tee off the same tee box you are. You're going to hit the ball about as far as them. They're going to beat you by 30 strokes, but you're going to play a (laughs) similar game, right? If you're 155 out and you got a seven iron, I'll bet you she has a seven iron. And you know you're not. They're not going to be teeing off 40 yards behind you, and they're not going to be. Asking you to please don't step in my line. It's not going to be a practice round for them. It's going to be a you know it's going to be a fun day playing golf. So it's more relatable, right? It's just totally. We go to the we go to the pro am party tonight. You know you'll see fifty players in there hanging around. Go to a pro am of another you know, of another tour, go to a, go to the night before an NBA game and tell me how many athletes you saw hmm. in the room. It's not, it's not part of their DNA. It's, it's who we are. So when somebody calls me and says the most important thing for me, Mike, is I want to get my hundred best somebody's together in some location and really spend time and get to know them. I'd say, well, then you called the right place. If somebody calls me and says, we're trying to launch a new four definition television. That's about how many eyeballs we can get. I say, Hey, call Jay, you know, Call Goodell, those guys deliver more eyeballs than we do. I do pretty well globally, but if it's just about eyeballs in the US, Mm. they'll win. So I'd rather have you go spend time with them because they're better at that. But if you want to talk about an experience on the golf course, I win. I mean, I'm I'm the best at that. So generally, what we sell is a great hospitality experience, not just on pro am day, but the entire week. We and then we sell an, an opportunity to have a great hometown event. So for Kia, we're gonna have a great South, you know, you know, Southern California event. But we're gonna let the world eavesdrop. We're gonna have 165 countries watch this event.
3: We honestly had a blast catching up with the LPGA players this year. And first up is from episode one fifty one, Lydia Ko. Uh, just asking her a bit about all she's been through in the last couple of years and it was it was really nice to hear from from her mouth directly how she's dealt with the trials and tribulations of the last several years. So Lydia Co from episode 151.
6: Um I think you know obviously I made some big decisions um but you know looking back now I don't I don't regret any one of them um you know even from those decisions I've changed decisions you know this year but you know I feel like I was moving in the right direction and you know even last year um you know, I was like, man, the season's done already, you know, by CME, uh, and it just goes by so fast and, you know, there's really no time for you to look back and, you know, worry about, hey, what could have happened, what I should have done, and, you know, um, so I, yeah, I always say no regrets made, um, but, you know, I feel like golf is such a confidence thing where, you know, you see everyone out here, the talent level is all pretty similar, but, you know, if you get, uh, you know, if you have a great week and you kind of gain that confidence, you kind of end up being on that momentum and keep playing well and I think that's what golf is really about and I think you know winning uh, in San Francisco earlier this year that made me have you know top 10 the week after so you just kind of you know end up being stuck on a good momentum rather than going down and having those ups and downs but you know, it's uh, I almost felt like I put so much pressure on myself because you know I've been very lucky enough to you know do a few of those things you know early in my career that you know the expectations were so high um, that you know even. Though when you come second, I mean, I came second, I think three times last year and that's that's good, but (laughs) it's like, oh, you just didn't do as good. So there were, you know, a lot of comparisons and, uh, but to me, you know, um, you really can't do anything about it. And all you can do is look forward and, you know, try and do whatever you think is going to be the best for you in the future in that moment.
3: Is there any been anything? And I know a lot of people have made a big deal about the caddy changes and whatnot, but it seems like on the LPGA tour, it's not necessarily a common thing <laughs> to have for people for a ton of people to have the same caddy throughout. So, is there anything that kind of has been misrepresented in the media or about any of the changes you've made that like w- that you would want to clarify or anything in that regard? What, what's 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 out there that's really not the most accurate?
6: Um, I think you know they were they said Ah oh, Lydia had like. I don't even know how many caddies I've had now, <laughs> but, you know, my rookie year, um, I, you know, I obviously hadn't been around the LPGA a lot before my rookie year, so I didn't really know what exactly I needed as a caddy, because, um, you know, for a lot of my events, my mom caddied for me at, like, the US Women's Am, Australian Am. And, you know, I was just used to her or somebody that I knew. So, you know, having a full-time caddy was definitely a new step for me. And I, too, was learning, and I'm still learning what I want and what I don't want. So um, that itself is a learning process. And, you know, the first year, um, I actually had a lot, you know, I asked the caddy, hey, you know, is it okay if we work on a trial basis? And I think rather than me saying, you know, hey, I fired that person after a few weeks, it was more that, you know, I learned, okay, maybe I need somebody that does this a bit more. So I think that was kind of the trial process, and uh, and that ended up being a huge deal, but... I mean, it's done. I you know, it is true. I guess that I had you know, whatever many caddies. Uh, but the perspective I had. on that is yeah. probably different than it's been reported. So um, yeah. yeah, but no, it's uh, I feel like you know, even now, you know, I I learn. Oh, okay, at these times I want my caddy to do this or help me with this, uh, whether that's in practice or on the golf course. And you know, you get to learn more about yourself too during this process, and, and the people that you know you work with. Um, and, and I still feel like. I'm young at heart. <laughs> well, you
7: are still. well, I was gonna say you're just still young. Period. Young <laughs> on
6: the passport and young at heart. Yeah. Sometimes I don't feel young when I'm playing like five weeks in a row. But um, no, it's uh, I feel like I'm getting to learn more about myself, and I think you know, learning is something that you never really stop doing. Yeah.
3: Up next is Danielle Kang. This is episode 127. She's one of my favorite people in golf. Just an absolute crazy ball of energy and we talked a bit about what it's like to be a female in golf and she addresses some of what she goes through online listening back to it it's uh i cringe a little bit about how hard we laughed at what she told us but she says this you have to trust me that she tells this story with a smile and with laughter and that she had planned on telling this story on the podcast. And she does laugh about it, but uh, gives you a little glimpse into what it's like to be a female in golf and what kind of attention you get online. So this is Danielle Kang, episode 127. Do you get a lot of, like, weird fans on social media or stalkers or anything like that?
8: Yeah. Do people? A lot of people listen to this, right? Yeah. Okay, please stop sending me dick pics. <laughs> like, please stop. Because, like, I... Like, I honestly wanted to say that, like, at one point in an interview because I'm like, okay, guys, I don't know what people that they've dealt with that they want to see it. But, like, I don't want to just be going on my day, going through my DMs once like once. Just in sliding in the DMs. And, like, I'm scrolling through, you know, and just clicking here and there. Like, I read all the DMs. Like, I do. Like, most of them. Because, thankfully, like, none of my fans are, like, haters. I love them all, like, mm-hmm. and I'm hoping that I don't give them any reason to hate me. Like, so there aren't anything bad ever in there, but like, don't send me the okay. It's not even the dick pic, it's the videoing. Oh,
3: no, it's, dude, they okay. Is this Instagram usually, or is it? I
8: can show it to you.
3: You, you don't know. have to do that. No, we're good. I believe you. I,
8: I open it up, and I, I, another thing is, guys, I put it in my group chats, guys, like, I screenshot it. And oh, I send you put it to people all, on blast. I put it all in my group chats, and I send it to all my friends. But then, like, and then you get, like, first of all, you're going to get blocked. Okay? Just don't do it. Okay? And it's just, even if you are that weird, I don't need to know that you're that weird. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, yeah. let's just have a little bit of boundary. Like, let's, don't lose my respect to you, is what I mean. And just sending me the videos is, like, it's kind of weird. I'm not gonna lie. What like
9: have you ever had any any instances where it's it's gotten kind of beyond social media and into?
8: Yes, I have two restraining orders, and I have gotten my hotel room broken into four times.
3: Four times? Yeah. Same person or no? Different.
8: I'm very quiet about it in the screen. Like, there's no point of like saying it to everyone. But like, since you asked, but yeah. it's it's not. I mean, I don't know. It's a, Sometimes they they get excited. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it is. Well, thank you that you like me so much to do that, but I I like to be in peace. Like I'll see you at the golf course.
3: Up next, episode one fifty two. This is Jessica and Nelly Corda, and it's Jessica describing the dramatic surgery she went through in the off season and all the things she went through to address some migraines that she was having. So uh, I would say enjoy, but this is this is a tough one to enjoy. But I think is a very. Very telling story and one of the more shocking things I think we heard on the podcast this year, episode 152, Jessica Corda.
10: So I've been struggling with headaches and migraines for years now. They said that when I was um, when they took my braces off, I had braces on for eight years um, to try and fix this problem, and they never could. Um, Basically, only my back teeth touched. So your your bottom jaw is supposed to grow down and then kind of forward. Mine just kept growing down, so only my back teeth were touching, and I couldn't. There was no traction in the front at all. So biting into things, I had to go to the side of everything. So a lot of pressure kind of created in the back. Um, when we played U.S. Open um, in 2015, um, we, I went to see a specialist, and there was braces that I could have. Drill, they would drill into the top of my um, jaw and... You know, try and move things around. Like I cannot have braces. Like that is yeah. one thing that I cannot do is braces right now. So they built me this like puck that I basically had, which Nellie had seen it for the first time I think last year, and she was like, in "You Texas. should be so, you should be so happy you're in a relationship because you are just wow." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Thanks." She literally was laughing for like 15 minutes straight. I was like, "I mean, the I like it's not that talking. funny, <laughs> like, yeah?" Because it's like it's straight up hockey puck. Like it's just it was not pretty and um so that actually relaxed my jaw so much that it dropped back and I started snoring at night and (laughs) it also (laughs) where Ah! (laughs) Nellie woke me up in the middle of the night and was like Jess you're snoring and I was like no I'm not I can hear myself she's like you can't hear yourself I like couldn't fall asleep I was like I was debating on like throwing a pillow in her face and I'm like it it was so bad so, it actually also dropped back and left, so when I was talking or chewing or anything, I had to swing it back to center and then bring it back up, um, which made me work even harder, and um, it just tightened everything up even more, so my I had terrible migraines, I was had headaches every single day, I wouldn't sleep through the night properly. And I finally had enough in uh, China where I had a migraine that literally cramped up half my face. Um, I couldn't even, like, open my eye. I had to pull out the Pro-Am, and I literally just went back and slept and, you know, tried to get rid of it that way. And the cramp lasted until the next week into CME, and I called my parents. And I was like, I'm doing the surgery. Like we need to find a surgeon called the surgeon. And he was like, I can fit you in, um, December 7th. So
3: you knew what the surgery had to be at that point already. I
10: thought that it was just going to be, they're going to break my bottom jaw and just move it forward. I didn't realize just just that, by the way, if you think about, so that actually wouldn't be as bad as what happened was they actually went in through my top lip and broke my top jaw into three. So your palate into three. So I have a ton of screws from like my nostrils down. Um, this which, might be the
3: first time I faint in a know, <laughs> know, so, yeah. um,
10: And then they made slight small incisions on the sides of like bottom, where your bottom jaw is. And they kind of like shaved off side. Cause there's a the nerve is running through the bone. So they shaved off the side and kind of slid it forward and then put screws in there. Um, and yeah, so the recovery was awful as it's been documented over and over again. Uh, lots of blood, lots of throwing up. Mm-hmm. Didn't take in a calorie for three weeks. I was fed through a syringe. Couldn't even, uh, my they had to break my nose on top of it because they couldn't get the breathing tube up. So um, usually it would go down your throat, but they're working in your mouth, so it has to go up your nose. Uh. and.
3: Did, at this point, were you regretting doing this, or did you no. know it was going to be like this? Um,
10: yes. I didn't know it was going to be this bad. If I would recommend anybody doing it is to have it done in a hospital and be in a hospital. I was outpatient, um, mm. and so my mom had to take care of me, and mind you, we were also in North Carolina, so we were nowhere near Florida, and then I right. had to fly five days later, go home, and I kicked my dad out of his bed because I had to be monitored, and so I slept in bed with mom, and, you know, every couple hours, she had to change my ice. Um give me my medication and all this stuff. And I had no idea what time any, uh, it was. So all of a sudden at four o'clock in the morning, I decided I'm gonna take a shower. And my mom got like no sleep. I think Nellie took it really well. My brother couldn't even walk into the room. Um, He was like terrified of my face. Really? Yeah. I mean, Jess didn't even like feel her bottom lip. So she was drooling a lot. And I would just be eating
6: dinner. I'm like, Jess, you're drooling everywhere. <laughs> I'm like, sorry. You can't
10: help <laughs> like, it. I still don't feel, I would say, 75 percent. I still don't have feeling. I have nerves that are tingling, which is a really good sign. Um, so the nerves are recovering. I just had my last couple of scans done and the bones, everything looks really good. Um, just the left side isn't growing in as fast as the right side. So, um, and I can't feel most of it teeth. But it is teeth. improving. So it's improved so, improved so much. The, the
7: original problem though is, is Oh, better. totally okay. gone.
10: Um, now I just have because also I'm doing Invisalign because when you do this type of surgery, your teeth shift. And so um, I also am in Invisalign and moving my teeth, which is putting a lot of pressure just on like my jaw.
3: Transitioning back to the men's side, episode 158. This is Julian Surry. I am a sucker for redemption stories in golf. And Julian Surry spent a lot of time on many tours and has transitioned it to being a top 100 player in the world, and as much as he is a, is a sandbagger on the course with me, uh, really enjoyed hearing his perspective on the podcast. So, episode 158, Julian Surrey. Kind of struggling there for a couple of years.
11: Um, started to lose my swing at the end of at the end of my senior year at Duke, and uh, and I'd never had a swing coach my whole life. I'd never had any sort of formal instruction, and and I'd, I'd done all right with some you know somewhat good results at, at college, and I was an All American once, but. Um, when the good was good, it was really good, but when the bad was bad, it, it really hit the fans. So, um, and you know, I was pretty stubborn to kind of see somebody and, and, uh, and so, you know, at the end of 2015, I thought, you know, my game was good enough, um, to do the Q school. So I did the European Q school. My rationale for that was, you know, you make it to final stage of Q school.
3: Well, first, before we do that, because I, I, I've tried to do a little notes preparing for this and whatnot, okay. I couldn't find like record of... You said it, you turned pro in 2013. I couldn't find what you were doing in that two-year span. So walk us through what was happening during that a that few year span yeah, when you so, turned pro.
11: So I turned pro in the fall of 2013, um, did the web.com Q School, missed out on that. Uh, did the Asian Tour Q School in January of 2014 in Thailand, missed out on that. Um, so I come back. I'm just playing mini tours. I'm playing what was then uh, the Swing Thought. Um, they've had a million different sponsors, the Hooters. It was the whole old Hooters tour, NGA it was. Um, I was playing pretty crappy, honestly, um, and was just kind of, you know, I was pretty stubborn to f- find help. And 14 was probably the worst year because there was no – you know, I'd play golf at, at my home course, and I'd lose five, six golf balls around, and mm. and it was just uh, it wasn't fun. And I don't know why it took me so long to find somebody who who would help. I you know I've it takes me a while to kind of trust people too, and that's a pretty uh, personal part of, of who I am is my golf swing. So it took some time. I was playing a lot of Moonlight Tour. Those were like one day events in Orlando where you kind of you pay a hundred bucks and you show up, and the winner can get up to five hundred bucks depending on the field size, but um, and, uh, those will get 25, 30 guys. Uh, but you know, those were just kind of reps to, to get going and play West Florida tour, uh, Monday qualifiers. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was kind of a grind.
7: It wasn't pretty. Did you see success with the first swing coach that you visited with, or what was that process like? Did you have to go through a number of them to find somebody that you worked well with? Um, no, the, the first swing coach I've really had was the one that I'm currently with,
11: Dan Caraher. I started working with him last year at the end or in uh, April of 2017. Um, so up until then I'd seen progress and I I was just kind of like kind of throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what stuck for those, you know, two years or whatever. So you kind of fought your way out of it on your own in in 2014. Okay. To an extent. And I started to see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel and I was playing a little bit better, but um
3: during that that time was there was it for like were you very convinced that you wanted to continue on this path was there ever doubt that you wanted to play professional golf at any point
11: uh, yeah I mean there was always the love for the game and that's what I always wanted to do as since I was a kid six seven years old um and so it's always what I wanted to do but in the back of my head at times sure I was just like you know maybe I'm not cut out for this you know maybe I had this good junior career and solid college career and And, uh, this is my undoing and, you know, because of my stubbornness or whatever, I'm not able to push through to the next level. And, you know, you see guys that you grew up with in junior golf and, you know, and, and college golf or whatever, and they're having success and you're like, man, you know, what's the difference? And, um, so now you know, people
3: are looking at you, probably the opposite side, I'm wondering the same thing. Yeah, I guess maybe. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just find it interesting because you noted, okay, you noted there that in April twenty seventeen is kind of when you started working with with Dan, but you turned pro, or uh, I guess so last March you pl- I looked this up on your official your official World Golf Ranking page. You played in the Barclays Kenya Open. You finished t forty one, and you ended the week uh, ranked one thousand one hundred forty second in the world. And sixteen month sixteen months later, you're ranked sixty second in the world. So something happened in that period of time where, I mean, cause it's one thing to kind of come out of school and, and take a, like a, maybe a year to break through, but you were probably four years removed from school before, like almost like a post-hype sleeper breakout. So what the hell changed in, in that time period to make that kind of leap post-hype sleeper breakout? Yeah, that's,
11: yeah, that's one way to put it. Yeah. I, uh, I, know it was, um, yeah, I mean, it was right after I got back from Kenya I had to take a hard look at my game because I at the end of 2016 I missed my European Tour card by one and so I played all right and uh for six rounds and and the very next week I got my first European Tour start in Australia played okay came in 15th I think or 16th something like that and I was like okay maybe I can ready I'm ready to kick some ass on the challenge tour next year and I start out in Kenya and it was just like I I remember the last round I shot one under and I think I had nine or 10 wedge shots like inside 120, 130 yards. And I was inside of 30 feet once. And, and I shot one under. So you look at the scorecard and you're like, okay, well, it's not bad. He's not making triples and quads. But like, I was like, dude, like, come on, there's, there's so much more in the tank. And so I went back. I was home for the entire month of April and uh, back here in Jacksonville. And I started working with Dan like two days after I got back. And, uh, and just worked on some changes. Pretty much had the whole month to grind on it. Went uh, went to Orlando a few times. Played some Moonlights. Played some Florida Pro Golf Tour, which is another mini tour. That's not glamorous. Um, and uh, you just you got to kind of work on stuff for three days, four days. Go test it out in competition. Come back. Get the feedback. And, and go from there. And it was kind of like a four-week process. And then finally I went over to Portugal at the beginning of May last year. And uh, that was like a co-sanctioned event between the challenge and the European, and I came in second. And then um, two weeks later, I won a challenge event, and it kind of propelled the rest of my summer.
3: Up next, episode 165 with Gil Hands, just talking about designing golf courses for PGA Tour players. I know we've talked a lot about that on the podcast this year, and he has one guy who has attempted to make some changes to courses to challenge these guys, and it has not been that well received, so it was fun to talk to him about that. Episode one sixty five, Gil Hans.
7: It would be great to have the guys have to to shape shots. I mean, what part of what we did at at, at Doral and the restoration, renovation of the Blue Monster was that. You know, we we restored the angles that Dick Wilson had put in place. Where if you don't shape your ball, you're going to hit it through the fairway into a set of bunkers on the far side. So everything was angled, and the guys went crazy because they can't they they're not used to doing that, and they don't want to be told they have to do it. And I think that's part of the reaction to the the fairway bunkers on number twelve was that, you know, since they were little kids, they're always told down the middle, hit it long, hit it straight, hit it long, hit it straight, and now all of a sudden somebody's put something really horrible and penal, which those bunkers were. They were tough. They weren't, guys weren't going to hit a five iron out of them and get on the green. They were going to have to, as I think I, I learned the phrase uh, chip out bunkers from some of the players. That was, I'd never heard that before, but you know what? It's, it's a penalty and it's intended to be. So I think once you, once you push the envelope in a certain way to have a reaction, you're go, you would expect a counter reaction. The fact that it, there was much vitriol was a little bit surprising to me. But, you know, ultimately, uh, the players of the show, not the golf course, not the golf course architect. And and if the tour feels strongly enough that we've done something that inhibits their ability to put on a good performance, then you know, you're going to pay the price.
3: Up next, episode 141 with Paul Azinger. Paul is a podcast, just he's an expert at this point. Finally got the chance to sit down with him this year. And uh and I'm also a sucker for Ryder Cup stories. So this is a, a little bit of a lengthier Ryder Cup story that spans two years that he played in the Ryder Cup. I could listen to this guy talk about this event for eternity. So enjoy Paul Azinger episode 141.
1: Uh well it was Curtis and I, and we were playing Gordon Brand and I think Sam Torrance. And they beat us on the last hole. Gordon Brand hit his second shot on the top of the tent of the spectator tent, which is twenty yards offline minimum, right of the right bunker, hits the top of the tent, goes forward, and then rolls like a son of a gun, bounces, comes off the tent and bounces down onto the green. And he ended up beating us in a match one up. Curtis and I lost one up. The ball's going out of bounds. <laughs> I remember losing that match, and then I got uh, with Chip Beck, and we won. And then we played Faldo in one match. And that was a revenge match for me. I remember telling Chip on the first tee. I mean, there was like, Faldo, Faldo, the flags are going. And they came up. And I I remember saying to Chip back, it was pretty loud. I said, Chipper, I don't know about you, but i would taken this match personal. And he goes, I love it, singer. Me too, singer. And we made 11 birdies. They made nine birdies. Wow. And we beat them two and one. Then I was really confident. We went. I got yeah. I got lucky. It's so lucky at Ryder Cup because I drew their superstars. Mm-hmm. I could have drawn a bunch of guys you never heard of, but I kept drawing. And it's just a blind draw. It's luck.
3: I was going to say you went up against Seve in the singles. That wasn't prearranged at all. None captains. of it is. Yeah.
1: It's just a luck fest. Who do mm-hmm. you get? And you know, our strategy was to look for their best players in some respects because they were better than us, and we knew it. But to uh, get our hottest players out first or whatever. I was first match out because I was playing so well. Mm. And I plucked Seve, which is the greatest gift ever to get Seve. And then we battled right from the beginning. And it's a famous match. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of controversy went with that match. And, you know, I'm, I'm vindicated by it because of Andy McPhee and, and the referee of the match. Is, you know tell you what happened.
3: Well, what did happen?
1: Well, he accused me of taking a bad drop on 18. I, I figured you'd probably get to that point. But i was like – Seve, you told us where to drop it. Yeah. I just kept that point between me and the hole and went backwards. Oh, okay. Um, but we had stuff going on the whole match. I called him the king of gamesmanship, and he said the American team's 11 nice guys in Zinger.
3: That was 91, right?
1: Oh, yeah, but still. It but was, was bleed a, over from 89. a scuffed
3: sure. ball incident from 89. Is that oh, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> no, that was from 91. No, that was 89.
3: Yeah, in their singles match.
1: Well, see, I draw Seve on Saturday night, and Curtis walks up to me and says, don't let him pull anything on you tomorrow. So my mindset <laughs> shifts. So then we get to uh, the first tee, and Curtis goes off last, and I'm off first. So there's a lot, big gap between those tee times, and he comes walking up to me on the first tee. Hey, how are you feeling? Good. Don't let him pull anything on you today. So back then the golf balls were getting shredded by the square grooves, mm-hmm. and we were both using square groove wedges. We hit irons off the second tee, three irons, both of us, wedge into the green. He hit it about 12 feet. I hit it about 4 feet. And uh, we get up there, and he takes his ball and tosses it to his caddy, Ian, and says, "I take this ball out of play." And uh, I was like, "Curtis popped in my head." You know? <laughs> That's so good. So my ball was shredded. I had hair. I used a ping wedge back then, and it mm-hmm. really wrecked the golf balls. And you could, excuse me, you could pick my golf ball up by the paint thread <laughs> that was hanging from it. And so I can't take it out of play though. I could rub that paint thing off of there, but I can't take the ball out. So anyway, I just thought he was pulling something right there. And so I looked at his caddy, I asked, I said, I need to see that ball. And uh, I looked at it and I walked over to Seve. and He was already lining up, he just squatted down and he just looked up at me like that. And he's, I said, I don't think he can take this ball out. I said, look at mine, it looks just as bad. He goes, the European rules, his is no good. <clears throat> I said, well, in the US, you're gonna have to play it. <laughs> I said, maybe we should ask the official. So Annie McPhee came in. Um, Great guy. He uh, he says, oh, I'm sorry, Seve, you have to play this ball. Well, the crowd was into it now, and they were jeering me. Mm-hmm. The best thing about that, too, is, is when the crowd – well, actually, Sevy lined that put up from every direction. <laughs> oh, no, let me just say this. I looked at Seve, and I said, I'm sorry, my ball looks just as bad. And Sevy looked at me, and he said, no, no, it's okay. If this is the way you want to play today, we can play this way. And I swear, bro, uh, my hands do not shake when I play. But at that moment, I was starting to quiver. <laughs> he made the 12-footer. Of course he did. And then as the crowd noise died down, some British guy yelled out, what would you have done with a good ball, Seve? <laughs> and I was thinking, man. I put my ball down. I was like this. I hit this putt that went in the hole and came right back at me, and the crowd just yelled out. Or they cheered twice as loud sure. when mine missed. And it was really a rough match after that. We went at it. I didn't think he was hitting it that good. Raymond Floyd comes up to me. I was two down after four in the car. He's all worried. And uh, he's, you all right? I said, I'm great. I said, he's not hitting it that good. He's going to give me a couple holes you watch. He duck hooked it right in the junk on five, gift. Um, And so he gifted me a couple. And we just did battle right to the 18th hole. And uh, even my caddy was doing battle. It was just awesome, dude. It was like, welcome to the Ryder Cup. And it became, you know, it's in our head, it's in their blood. Mm -hmm. So it's different for them. But my head flipped on Ryder Cup. I'm like, this is it. Whoop these boys. That's the way I thought. I mean, the
3: passion that people talk about, I, get that, I talk about the Ryder Cup on every podcast because the, the, the stories that come from it are better than anything that comes from stroke play events, that's for There's sure. There's a
1: lot of stuff, man. It happens in those matches. You know, on 10, I hit it to the right of the green over there, going for the green in 89. And seven. when I got up, it was on some lady's plastic whatever. And when I got, I had to drop closer. It kept going closer to the green. And when I stood up, Before I dropped, I stood up and bumped into Seve. He goes, I want to know right where your ball was. And, I mean, it was like that out there. And then he grabbed his ball and tried to place it all around. And thank God it didn't stay anywhere. And I had to set mine on a little tuft of grass to get it to stay. And he's like, now you have a perfect life. And it was just like we went at it. But, you know, we were good friends before the Ryder Cup. And I think we were just fine after. Everybody thinks we hated each other and all that. You know, Seve taught me as much as anybody, too. Mm -hmm. He was great. Uh, to Golf
3: rivalry is different than kind of a personal dislike. The Ryder Cup is right? different.
1: Yeah, it, well, there was a passion there. You know, we were both patriotic, I guess, in some respects, and then we we're very passionate. Mm-hmm. And
3: uh, so it boils over to '91, the war by the shore. You and Chip back get paired against Sevy and yeah. uh, Jose Maria. Yeah. And was it the first match that there was the the, the ball compression incident? Can you walk us through what happened there?
1: See, I I hate that it's remembered for ball compression incident, but that's what it's remembered for. And I got four of those golf balls brand new sitting in my room that I found in my old Ryder Cup bag. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, they took a bad drop on number two that the official let them get away with. They played it. They broke the rule, basically. They hit a ball that they couldn't tell went in the hazard. Then they played a provisional, which is for a lost ball. And then they went back and dropped like the ball, like they knew the ball went in hazard, but they didn't know. And it was controversial, but we won the hole. And then the fourth hole, Seve hooked it in the junk. And the official yells out, he says, five minutes is up. And then literally within 10 seconds, they found the ball, and he let them play it. And I just was – Ape about that. And Chipper's yeah. like, calm down. I said, no, man, he can't do it. So that was how that match started. Okay. Didn't know that. Yes. And I actually requested another official. So we had another official come in. We had two officials on that match. Then on, nine, on 10T, they accused us of using the wrong compression ball, which we did. And it was totally my fault. But it was a 90 compression titleist versus a 100 compression titleist. And we were on the first par five here's how it works. If, if the hundred compression titleist goes off number one, the hundred compression titleist has to go first off every odd hole the rest of the day. Okay. That's as simple as what it is. That, but, that 90 compression ball, which was red. If it goes off number two, it goes off every even hole the rest of the day. When is that still to, that way? You can alternate balls. I don't know what okay. the rule is now. They changed. They've done a bunch of changes, okay. but I think it's a one ball rule now. Actually, yeah, I think to so. Truth. I do know what it is. Um, Yeah, so uh, my pea brain was just figuring, well, if you hit my ball off the tee, then I lay lay up. No, if I hit your ball off the tee, if you hit my – no, no, here's what it was. If you hit my ball off the tee, you lay up, I get to hit my ball into the green. Mm -hmm. That's what it was. And they caught that, and that's illegal. But they didn't call it. It was on seven. Eight, we played normal. Nine, we played normal. So they tried to call us. On it, I guess, on 10T, and we were two up or three up or something. And it shook us up. I'm sorry, it was hard for me to remember exactly that no, sequence, but that's how it went. Understandable. Yeah, <laughs> this is Paul Azinger here, completely confused. 27 years ago, I don't know what happened? But um, <laughs> yeah, anyway. It was a. It was ugly.
3: I always wondered how they could tell. How would they even know? I guess it was the color of the ball was different. That's no,
1: just the logo, just the titleist the... stamp and the number on the ball. How did they notice it's that? Black That's or red? They heard crazy. us talking about it. Oh, okay. I was free and talk. We were talking about it like yeah. it was a great strat. Boy, aren't we smart? Right. But boy, we Messed butchered it, it because if <laughs> you hit a black ball off the first tee, it's got to be off every odd hole.
3: And it just seemed like that kind of triggered the flames a little bit for that entire it made it great In the yeah end, that yeah. little
1: bit of controversy made the Ryder Cup great it made actually Americans really started to care about the Ryder Cup mm-hmm.
3: Up next, episode one thirty-five with Mark Brody. This one was a hard one to just select one clip for. Uh, I do suggest this is a great episode to go back and listen to if you are at all interested in understanding how stats work, how strokes gained work, how strokes gained works, and uh, how you could even improve your game. And that's what this clip is. Uh, I asked him just what how it is what what skill would amateurs need to improve on the most, and here's his answer, Mark Brody, episode one thirty-five. That the the findings the insights the results were
7: very consistent across a wide range of golfer groups so if you take a look at the difference between a high handicapper and a middle handicapper middle handicapper a low handicapper between average tour pros and the best tour pros the same sorts of of results hold namely that uh, about 65 percent of the scoring differences occur from shots outside a hundred yards and about 35% from shots within a hundred yards of the hole. And so, you know, 10 strokes, if you want to go from a typical 90 golfer to a typical 80 golfer, about six and a half of those 10 shots come from, uh, being better off the tee and outside a hundred yards and about three and a half of those strokes come from, you know, being better inside a hundred yards,
3: including putting. So what's something that you've heard on television over the years, or especially after doing all your research, you hear now and just cringe as just something that's just flat out not true. Last and certainly not least, episode 177 with Maverick McNeely. I'm only including this last because it was just last month and somewhat recent. Uh, But in case anybody didn't catch that interview, Maverick is a 22-year-old professional golfer, just turned pro recently, and uh, one of the more insightful guys I've spoken to in golf. So. Uh, learned a lot from him actually this year, just talking with him and about his background. And uh, I think you'll enjoy this as well. Episode one seventy seven, Maverick McNeely. You know,
9: it's, it's really hard to play golf when you don't have everything outside the golf course in order. Um, and you know, I, I just kind of, I was hitting it all over the planet. I, I couldn't control my golf ball and I was in a pretty dark place. Um, you know, on and off the golf course was not a fun place for me to be. And, um, I realized that I needed to to continue. I needed to have a good reason for why I was doing this. I needed to have a really really good reason that was under control and under my control and something that was, you know, that should be in my control. And I realized I was kind of operating and this is kind of what I said about a cleanse. I was operating on a lot of things, a lot of sources of self-confidence and self-assurance and feel good that were just bad, bad reasons, bad reasons for why I'm doing what I'm doing. I had a lot of bad reasons for why I was playing golf. Like I'm making good contract money. This is what I'm committed to do. This is, um, I don't know what else I'd be doing. I don't know how to start over. I don't know. Just bad reasons for playing golf. And I realized I needed to come up with, I gave myself two weeks. I said, if you don't come up with a really good reason for why you're playing golf, I'm going to quit. And I thought about it and I was talking to one of my buddies about, you know, kind of all I had learned through this past month, month and a half of sucking. And uh, that's when it hit me. I said, "I, I know why I play golf and I know why I love doing what I do. And it's because golf is really, really hard and it puts you in some really uncomfortable places. And I realized that instead of running from those uncomfortable places and hiding from them, that's where the most of the learning happens. I feel like I've grown so much as a person and as a player because of all the struggles I've golf has put me through because it's really hard. It, it, uh, it messes with your head. It it's, it's not, it's just not easy. And I love the process of getting better and learning stuff about myself and trying to make myself better. And that's why I play golf is, is because it is forcing me to be better as a person and as a player. And, um, so now I think next year starting this this process over again I'm excited to be uncomfortable. I'm excited to learn how I react in those different situations and I have a poster over my bed that that says what are you going to learn about yourself today? And I think it's a really powerful question. It's it, I want to make it something good every day. I want I want to go to bed and say I learned that you know, it, it could be something as, as simple as I was walking down the street and I saw a piece of trash. I picked it up and threw it away. I like what I learned about myself in that instance. Or it could be I was four down through with six to play against one of my buddies and I birdied five of the last six and one one up. Like I learned that, you know, X, it, it, it's just um, it, it's a it's a powerful question. And golf makes you learn a lot about yourself. So that's that's why I play. And that's that's my reason. And that was really the start of things turning around for me.
5: Hmm.
9: we
3: got that is officially a wrap on 2018 if you made it this far you you must like this podcast so if i could ask that you go onto itunes leave us a five-star review leave us a a five-star rating leave us a review in there that helps us a lot Uh, i only ask once a year to do that so uh, in exchange for the free podcast please do check that out give us a little boost in there that helps a lot and uh signing off for 2018 everyone enjoy the holiday enjoy the new year and we'll see you in
8: 2019
3: cheers be the right club
1: be the right club today that's better than most how about him that is better than most better than most